0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian Higgins.
1: It's not necessarily what, uh, what would Jesus do, but uh, what would Pablo Escobar do?
0: Now here's the show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Count Basie behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Live from Salt Lake 2. I, we've been to Salt Lake a few times, but this is the second time we're you know, featuring a whole episode of Salt Lake Stories. Actually, this last trip we made to Salt Lake, there was a fourth story that was also completely awesome and will be on the show soon, but we like to keep it to three stories for an episode. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear an extraordinary story by Chris Green. It will be his first time ever sharing a story live on stage or on the podcast here. But before that, the return of someone who was did our Salt Lake City the last time we were there as well. And that is Brian Higgins. You can find him on Instagram at Real Change. That's R-E-E-L change. Here is Brian Higgins now with a story we call Smuggle Trouble.
1: Hello, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so picture this, the wind is howling, the waves are just splashing off the Antrim coast, and the rain is starting to, to trickle. It's just a normal night in Northern Ireland, and I'm standing on the edge of a bunker at the Royal Port Rush Golf Club. See, me and my mates have decided to make the trip to the seaside town to go to an illegal rave. You know, one of our favorite bands, Scooter, is are uh, playing. And they're like the old like Euro happy hardcore type bands, you know, the ones that just go like, and then some repetitive piano beats, and then some German guy saying, yeah, yeah, let's bring it up. <laughs> well, me and my mates, as I said, taking the track to go there, and uh, I was all kitted out. You know, I had my, my yellow luminous waistcoat, I had my whistle, I had my glow sticks, and I, of course, I had plenty of ecstasy. And this was the first time that we'd gone to an illegal rave. So we were quite worried. So our plan was to take all our ecstasy, put it inside condoms, and then shove them up where the sun don't shine. Um, so as I say, I was on the side of the bunker. And this is where I like to think it gets very British. So I get down into the bunker. I take out my little, um, my little pre-prepared package, like a china teacup with my pinky out. I pulled down my trousers and my boxer shorts and I hunkered down and with some little slippery perseverance I managed to make a nice little snug fit and I was happy ready to go. But then unfortunately the terrible words came to my ears. One of my best friends said, I'm having trouble, will you carry mine too? (laughs) And it just brought back all the other terrible times that he'd asked similar questions. You know, one, can I copy your homework? Two, can I eat your lunch? Three, can I fuck your sister? And now this, you know, there was just no fucking pleasing this fella. But, you know, he's my best mate, so what am I going to do? So I did another couple of, bit of a shimmy, got them up there. Uh, and I couldn't really understand why they were having so much difficulty, because they were lubricated condoms after all. But after I would managed to get the second package up there, you know, the rest of my fellas, they all just fell like dominoes. And they decided that, well, if I'm carrying his, I might as well carry everyone's. Because if I get caught, you know, there's only one person going to jail. So I am a people pleaser after all. So I went for it. There was a difficulty because, you know, my bum was a virgin bum. And I hadn't experienced the two-way traffic before. But with a couple of extended digital prodding, I was good to go. And I moved on across. We walked across the golf course over to the, the club. And we could hear, you know, the music was already starting to pound. The old <laughs> So it was pretty cool. And I could see from the crowd that some people had already pre-gamed their pills and were already coming up. And I was starting to think maybe I should have done that. But I was getting worried because, as I mentioned, you know, it was an illegal rave. And back home in Northern Ireland, they were run by the IRA and the UVF. So I could feel, you know, the sweat starting to come in because I was worried because there was no option that, you know, I would actually get arrested if I got caught. You know, I was just going to get a kicking. They were going to take all the drugs off you and then just sell them yourselves. Because in the end, you know, all those drugs and bombs don't pay for themselves. And a bit of a history lesson for anyone that doesn't really know about the, the turmoil in Northern Ireland so a couple of hundred years ago, um, Henry VIII decided he wanted to get divorced, but the Pope said no. So we invented the Church of England, and ever since then, the people in Northern Ireland have stamped our feet and tried to kill each other at every chance we get. It's a pretty a terrible time, and in all our Celtic word smithery, we decided to call it the Troubles. <laughs> you know, it's just like having a bit of a Barney with your wife indoors. It's just a bit of trouble. So anyway, as I say, you know, the bouncers were getting more into their searching. So I had a bit of another digital prod to give myself some extra security. And with a new waddle in my step, I walked on in. You know, I got past the search, which I thought was great. And then I got my ticket, and I went made a beeline to the toilets so I could release my hostages. (laughs) But you see, the bouncers, even though they weren't professional bouncers, they still had their heads screwed on and they'd put one beefy specimen just inside the toilets to stop people like me doing what we were doing. Now, I knew this fella, he was my nemesis. You know, he was the only thing that was holding back for me in a night of delights. And he was the typical guy, you know, the typical beefy fella from an old 1980s kung fu film. He had the big black leather jacket, he had a mullet. He had the big mustache, and it was all tied together by mirrored uh, Ray Bands. So it was pretty tough. But you know, these toilets, they weren't the nice, clean toilets that you find in clubs these days. These were sort of a mix between a porta potty on a warm day and a 7 Eleven toilet. <laughs> but they were all full because everyone else had the same idea that I had. And I could see underneath the doors then most people were just getting stuff out of their socks, which was probably a better idea with hindsight. (laughs) So, you know, I waited till a a cubicle was open, and I went on in. You know, for the second time that night, pulled down my cax, gave myself a reach around, (laughs) but disaster. There's no digital retrieval. There's no exposed condom to pull upon. You know, in my extra worry for the bouncers and my extra extended digits, I'd push the condoms up far too far. You know, and I've seen enough films in my day that I was pretty sure that all the condoms were breaking right now and I was dying of an overdose. (laughs) But then I realized, you know, I made the decision. I'm going to have to shit them out. (laughs) So I turn around... And I look at the toilet seat. And then I daintily pull two bits of toilet paper and place them on the toilet seat. Because don't lie, we all do it. And I sit down, you know, and I shimmy. And I
2: squeeze.
1: But nothing's moving. Nothing's coming out. And I would say I was shitting myself, but I wasn't really. Um, And then another disaster strikes. Everybody else started leaving, and um, the bouncer starts pushing the doors. And he starts shouting, what's going on in there? And he gets to my cubicle, and he bangs on the door. What's going on in there? I know what you're doing, laddie. And I'm terrified, and the sweats are starting to come down. I don't know what to do. He said, I know what you're doing. Don't you worry. I'll be waiting outside. And then the sound of his footsteps just retreat to the back of the room. Fuck. 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 What am I going to do? So there's nothing moving and it's awful. It's not necessarily what, uh, what would Jesus do, but uh, what would Pablo Escobar do? Because I'm pretty sure he's been in exactly the same position. But then a miracle happens. Because I forgot to tell you, I've got irritable bowel syndrome and I'd had a massive portion of mushy peas and fish and chips for lunch. Now, I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that anxiety plus IBS equals (laughs) I'm one for luck. (laughs) Because you see, when you've got IBS, you're like a cartoon ghost, and you eat something, and then it immediately falls out the bottom of you. But as I say, a blessing in disguise, because anxiety triggers IBS, IBS triggers uh, mushy peas and fish and chips, diarrhea into the bowl, condoms and all. But again, no time for thinking, because this b- bouncer's sitting outside and I don't know what to do, so again, no time for thinking, hand straighten the shit juice, and I start squeezing around for trying to find the lumps in between the mushy peas, and then I finally find, I can feel four of them, you know, and I pull them And I don't think there's too many addicts in the room tonight, so this bit, next bit, might be a bit of a shock. But as I'm holding them and I can feel the lumps in my palm, I know there's no way that I'm going to be able to get out past the bouncer, because he's going to ask me to open my hand, you know? So again, no time for thinking. Open my fist. In my mouth. As I blast open the cubicle door... And out past him, give him a wee wink, and out into freedom. Now I can see my cohorts in the distance, they're just waiting on me, you know, desperate for their night. And I can feel the beady eyes of all the bouncers just just burning a hole into me. And again, there's no time for thinking, but plenty of time for kissing. So one by one, I lock lips on all my friends like a mother crow regurgitates her breakfast into her waiting flock and they all got their supper Uh, I tasted them they tasted me and we all tasted like shit but after a while you know we, we started to come up And uh, we danced and pranced the night away. And many other nights the same. But for some reason, we never talked about that night ever again. (laughs) Now, sometimes I wonder you know, I think about my friends, because we lost our way along the way, and I think about them, and I'll probably never see them again, so I hope they're doing well. Uh, But we'll always share that special bum bond. And I know what you're thinking. You know, drugs sort of mess with your memory a bit, but I'm pretty sure I did go back to the toilets and wash my hands. (laughs) Thank you. There's a cry across the heartland, a yearning for the days gone by. And in little old court in Indiana, they're happy and they'll tell you why. They got butt drugs.
3: They love butt drugs. Ba-ba-ba-butt drugs. drugs.
2: Ba-ba-ba-butt drugs. I love butt drugs. I recommend butt drugs for everybody.
3: I can always count on butt drugs. When
4: I think drugs, I think butt drugs. For all my health needs, I turn to butt drugs.
3: They got butt drugs, they love butt drugs, buh butt drugs, buh butt drugs. drugs. I love butt drugs.
4: So, I was seventeen years old, and I was talking on the phone that night with my girlfriend at the time. And I remember I told her, "I love you so much, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Good night." and I, I laid the phone on my chest, and we stayed on the phone for hours because when you're you're young and in love, you just can't bear to hang up the phone sometimes. So we were sleeping. And a couple hours later, I heard this knock on my front door, just boom, 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 and it woke up the entire house. And with that, I heard voices start to fill the room, and I heard my brother, Matt, in the living room where he was sleeping on the couch, he woke up, and these intruders started barking orders at him. And they said, get the fuck on the ground, where's your weed, where's your money? And with that, I knew I was in a real danger that I've never experienced before. So just to give some backstory, my brother, Matt, he had sold drugs for as long as I can remember, really. So he started selling weed when he was 12 and I was seven. And he had always kept me in the loop of what was going on. And I'd, I've never asked him why, but I think it's just because our relationship, he trust me and I never want to let him down he's my older brother so these intruders filled the living room and I could start to hear them beat my brother um, with something that sounded like metal I didn't know what it was at that point but it sounded like raw meat being tenderized and I heard his very tough raspy voice start to go down to these low shouts of pain and with that, they started running down the hallway towards my room. Now, to give some backstory on that as well, Matt would hide drugs in my room to keep them away from my mom and my grandma, and at that point, I knew that I had about a pound of wheat in my dresser drawer and a mason jar filled with assorted pills. I had no idea what they were at that point, but I knew that what they wanted was in my room. And so with them coming down the hallway, each step that they took, my entire house would shake. And I realized at that point, my girlfriend was still on the phone with me. And I looked down and I I was so caught off guard by all this and I was so scared of what was happening at that point that I could just squeak out in the softest voice, bad guys, gotta go, bye. And I hung up and they came down the hallway and with that they stopped in front of my mom's room that was directly across from mine and with that I heard them start to shuffle through everything in her room opening every drawer that was in there and just the short shallow breathing of my mom in the background my mom is a very tough lady she raised three kids by herself and I've never heard her make this sound and with that they were in my mom's room and I heard my brother cry out down the hallway in desperation don't point that gun at my mom and with that phrase as soon as it hit my ears I was paralyzed in fear I didn't know what to do I remember it kind of started down at my toes and it felt like a charley horse and everything just kind of slowly seized up and the only part that I remember moving was my eyes just back and forth Wondering what these men looked like, what the look on my mom's face was at that point, And knowing that they could very well just open my door and take whatever they wanted at that point. So I stayed there, quiet and still. The light that was on in the hallway started to go down from them filling up in the hallway. So I was just in complete darkness at that point. And once again, they started barking orders. Where's the money? Where's the weed? And then my grandma, in her room at the end of the hallway, got up and she just said in this tone of voice that I was very familiar to, that's it, I'm calling the police, get out of here, and... It was, it was like she knew that these were just some kids that were way in over their head and didn't know what they were doing, and she was going to call them out on their bullshit. So with that, I heard my grandma pick up her cell phone off the side of her, her nightstand, and she started to dial 911. And it's the shortest number you can actually call to dial, but it took forever in that moment for her to dial 911. And with every button, it felt like they were just shouting at her. These intruders with guns pointed at her, just put the phone down, put the fucking phone down, put it down. And with that, I could hear that they didn't know what they were doing. And I heard my grandmother on the other line. She picked up the phone, or the operator picked up the phone. She said, hello, I have intruders in my house. They're still here. Please send help. And with that, she put down the phone. And in that moment, all the intruders started to run down the hallway at once. And it's a very narrow hallway. So they were running into each other. And I could hear these guns clanging, their feet stomping. And they ran through the front of our living room. And they threw open the door. And I heard the bookcase that was behind the door. Everything fell from that bookcase. And the door closed, shut behind them so suddenly. And then the house fell quiet and it was still like nothing ever happened and it was quiet for a couple minutes no sound from my brother, my mom, my grandma, me until we heard another knock at the door boom, boom, boom once again this loud knocking kind of startling everybody in the house except for this time on the other side it said West Valley Police Department open up and the police came in and we each came out of our rooms, my mom, my grandma, my brother was in the living room, and as I came down the hallway, I kind of hung my head low, and I just felt so guilty that in that moment, I wasn't able to do anything, that I was scared. I was. I felt like a little boy. I was. I, I didn't know what to do. And we sat with the police in the living room, and we gave each of them our statements, and I hung my head down and I said I'm so sorry I didn't see anything I was in my room the whole time and I I just heard you know grandma call the police and I heard them run out and I heard they had guns and that was it and the police left and a couple days went by We tried to call the police to see if these people had been caught and those days turned to weeks and we never heard back and they got away the bad guys Got away, um with that a couple of months later, my grandma unfortunately passed away very suddenly, and it was a shock to the whole family and you know, um we didn't know how to react to it. We just knew that the foundation of our family was now gone, torn from our lives, and we didn't know how to handle ourselves and It's taken a long time for us to get back to normal with that after her passing and with this instance in our lives. And I always thought to myself, what was she thinking in that moment? What was, why would you, with a gun pointed to your face, how could you pick up your cell phone and call 911 right there? And I think I've come to the conclusion on it. I think that she didn't have any other option. I think she didn't know that there was an option to just freeze in fear and she knew that she needed to protect her family. And I have my own family now, the girl I was talking to on the phone that night. Um, we got married, we have two beautiful kids and um, a great life in the suburbs, thank you. And there's still times at night that I'll I'll hear something in my house just You know, a creek in the old house And I I wake up kind of in a panic You know, wondering if it's going to be That same situation again And when I was younger I thought to myself Well, can I rise to the occasion? Can I be like my grandma? And now having my own family I know I can do that I know I can be like grandma Thank you
3: gears won't turn and the leaves won't grow There's no place to run and no gasoline Engine won't turn and the train won't leave Engines won't turn and the train won't leave I will stay with you Your
0: life. This is Risk. This is Jose Gonzalez behind me now. And we just heard from Chris Green, who you can find on Instagram at ctgreen801. And before that, we heard an interstitial. It was actually an advertisement for butt drugs and Butt is a family name. This is a place, small town Indiana, where Butt Drugs isn't. That was an actual advertisement for that pharmacy. (laughs) Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Melissa Collins. This was a story that Melissa pitched to us years ago. I always encourage people to pitch us again, even if things didn't work out the first time pitching us a second story or third story or just revisiting the first story and reworking it and this is an example of something that was pitched a long time ago and by reworking it several times Melissa really turned this into something so extraordinary here she is now at the Risk Live show in Salt Lake City it's Melissa Collins with a story we call glimpses of beauty.
3: But there is a truth and it's on our side. Dawn is coming, open your eyes. Look into the sun as a new day's rise.
2: Sandy and I are walking around downtown, because it's what we do nearly every weekend. We dress up in fancy clothes, I wear a dress and tall shoes, he puts on a tie, and we walk to the symphony concert. So we're walking down 3rd South and Sandy grabs my hand. Or maybe I grab his, I'm not sure, but suddenly we're walking down the street and we're holding hands and it's the first time we've ever done this. We keep walking towards State Street we stop to wait for the light. And Sandy looks at me and he says, You do realize this is the most intimate thing we've ever done together, right? He was talking about us holding hands. See, we'd been hanging out for a few months at this point. We would make plans to go to a concert or to an art show, but more often than not, we would just end up walking around in the rain or the snow for hours, just talking. Sandy's a painter and I'm a musician, and we would talk about art and music and just trying to find and create beauty in a world that can feel so, so dark sometimes. We shared our fucked up stories of growing up in conservative places. Me, queer in South Dakota, him, trans in Utah. And we talk about how we were just trying to figure out how to live our lives in a way that just felt okay. And we were finding that we had a lot in common. Eventually, we started making out, and before long we were having sex, but we were both really adamant about the fact that neither of us were looking for a serious relationship. Like, whatever happened between us, it was going to be just strictly casual. And I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's because I'm never actively seeking anything serious, and I'm not great at being vulnerable with new people, Or maybe it's just because we had both been pretty indifferent about one another when we first met and we definitely didn't think that we would end up together. But in this moment, walking down the street, it's suddenly clear that maybe things aren't going to be as casual as we thought. Like in spite of all the walking and the talking and the kissing and the fucking, there's this intimacy with holding hands that just feels completely different. And Sandy asked me, so does this mean you're my girlfriend now or are we both still too independent for that? And in this moment, it's just clear that these things that we found, like this connection, this compatibility, this attraction, that these things are all really rare and worth acknowledging. Not long after this night, Sandy received a diagnosis of stage four cancer. And I imagine that a cancer diagnosis is always shocking, and this was no exception. I mean, Sandy was young, he was healthy, he ate raw vegan and drank green juice every day. But what was especially shocking was just how far advanced it was. The doctors told him that with traditional treatments of chemo and radiation, he could probably expect to live for six more months. Without these treatments, of course, they gave him much less time, and the cancer was so far advanced that surgery really wasn't an option anymore. Sandy decided not to do chemo or radiation, but he definitely didn't see this diagnosis as a death sentence, and he continued to live his life. And that's not to say that cancer wasn't this ever-present thing, because it absolutely was. I mean, if we traveled anywhere, we got a motel room, and we turned the bathroom into a kitchen so he could make green juice in the middle of the night. If we flew anywhere, we left hours of extra time to get all of his treatments through the airport security line. Like, healing was definitely his priority. But he was also living his life. And Sandy was painting, and he was drawing and he was putting on his own art shows and he was writing a book. And we were hiking and we were biking around town and we were collaborating on art projects and we were going to concerts. And we were falling in love. And before long, we were planning this life that we wanted to live together and we were talking about the places that we wanted to go, the things we wanted to do. We started daydreaming about the house that we wanted to have together, and we'd talk about where we would put his art studio and where I would have my workshop, and we'd talk about the garden that we'd have and the food that we'd grow, and we just really thought that we could have it all. Sandy moved well past that six-month prognosis. It's nearly two years later. A Thursday morning and I get a text message from Sandy it says I'm going to need you to bring me an authentic Mexican feast tonight also an apple and I read the text and I just feel this heaviness in my chest because I know exactly what those words mean but it still doesn't make any sense to me at all I mean I know that Sandy has cancer and I know it's serious We had spent so many nights up all night with him sick and us talking about what it would look like if he were to actually die. But we had spent even more nights up all night talking and having sex and making breakfast in the morning and talking about our plans for the future. So I'm reading this text and it's so confusing to me because it means that he might actually die. Things had really changed about two weeks before. He had been staying at my apartment. He left for a couple of days because he had doctor's appointments and was going to visit his mom, and the plan was for him to return on Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day wasn't really significant for either of us, but it's relevant here because he never returned to my apartment. In those couple of days, his health took just a really sudden and dramatic decline, so when Valentine's Day rolled around, he was sick over at his mom's, so that's where I went. I visited him over at his mom's and that was the day that it felt like death was suddenly on the table. I mean, death is always on the table, but this was the day that fighting cancer suddenly felt a lot more like getting affairs in order. He wrote his will, instructions for what to do with his belongings after he died, how to sell his art. And in the few days that followed, this decline continued. It quickly got to the point where he couldn't really get out of bed, so he was placed on hospice over at his mom's house. So that Thursday, when I got the text message from him, that's where I went. I got the Mexican food, and I found the best apple that I could possibly find. See, even before his diagnosis, we had both had pretty clean diets. And after his diagnosis, Sandy was incredibly strict about what he would and would not eat. So this Mexican food was definitely off the table, and even the apple was out because it had too much sugar. So I took the food over, but we barely touched it. And the cancer had spread so far that there was no longer any way for me to hold Sandy or to embrace him. So I just laid in front of him on his tiny, tiny hospital bed, and he wrapped his arms around me, and we both just cried. And my body shook in that way that your body shakes when you're just trying to resist the waves of emotion that are coming over it. And he just held me more tightly and he said, let it go, baby, let it go. I just wanna cry with you right now. I wanna cry with you because life, life isn't fucking fair. So I let it go and I fucking cried and he was right. Life isn't fair. That night, we just told stories, and we talked about the afterlife, and we wondered what it would be like. And he wondered if he would finally end up in the body that he belongs in. He talked about the regret of dying before he could complete his physical transition, and we talked about our story together. This unexpected love story. Throughout the night, Sandy kept taking an orange pill bottle off of the metal bedside table. These were the pills that he planned to take that night to end his own life. He'd hold the pills in his hand and he'd wonder what time he should take them. Should he take them at nine o'clock? 10 o'clock? Should he wait until midnight? Like how long would it take for the overdose to kill him? Eventually, we're both drifting in and out of sleep and every time I open my eyes, I look over at him to see if he's still breathing and I look to see if the pills are still in the bottle. In the morning, he's alive next to me and the pills are still there. He said that he couldn't take them when I was there, that it was just too hard, but I knew his plan was still to take them, so the next night I stayed at my apartment. I woke up early in the morning and I just paced around and I just waited because I knew that I would either get a text from him and I would know that he was alive, or I would get a phone call from his mom and I would know that he had taken the pills. Eventually I heard from him. He was alive. Next night, same thing, I visited Sandy during the day and at night I stayed at my apartment. I woke up around 3 in the morning just feeling panicky and anxious and I just paced around and I just waited and eventually I got a phone call from his mom. She said, something's going on with Sandy. And I just froze because I knew exactly what was going on and I said, What do I do? Where should I be? Where should I go? What do you need? What am I supposed to be doing right now? She told me to drive over. She said that I was the person he wanted there When I got there she told me that he had opened his eyes just for a moment and she told him that I was on my way So I went upstairs and I'm laying in the twin bed that's set up next to his hospital bed And I'm just watching him breathe And for the first time, I notice just how much his body has changed, like how small he's become. And I'm just watching him breathe, and he's breathing these shallow, shallow breaths, followed by these sudden gasps for air. And every time his breathing stops, my own breathing stops, and I just wait, wondering if that next inhale will come. I'm looking around his room, and I see that he's set up an altar. On it, I see a letter that's addressed to me. I see significant items from his life. I see the USB drive that I know contains his suicide note. I see the core of the apple that I know he was going to eat when he took the pills. And I see the empty pill bottle. And I just watch him breathe for hours. But eventually, he opens his eyes. And he's so groggy and so confused. And he looks at me and he says, I love you. I don't want to die. I want to live. He said that he thought it had to mean something, the fact that he woke up. Like it was the universe telling him that it wasn't his time to die. Like it was the universe telling him to keep fighting. He said that he wanted to stay awake because he thought if he fell back asleep he would just drift off and die. I mean, that had been the plan. So we stayed awake all day. We drank green tea for the caffeine. We told silly jokes and stories and we played easy card games like Go Fish, like just anything to stay awake. And I don't know how he did it. He had taken enough drugs to kill a healthy adult and even in his small sick state he somehow woke up. In the evening, I had to leave to go home and feed my cat. He asked me to bring my cello when I returned, and I did. And I set up a chair next to his hospital bed, and I played Bach and Vivaldi and Brahms for him while we both just cried. We stayed up all that night as well. Same thing, green tea, silly stories, go fish. And we stayed up the next day also. And Sandy started fighting again. He went back to the treatments that he thought held the most promise. And we went back to planning our life together because it's all we knew. And I confessed to him that I'd always held on to this, like this kind of juvenile logic, like this idea that he couldn't possibly die because we had so many unfinished plans. And I said, you can't die because we're going to Europe when you get well. You can't die because we're getting married. You can't die because we have all of these unfinished art projects. You can't die because we just purchased the extra large box of condoms, but we've only used two of them. (laughs) And I don't know if we were laughing or crying at this point, but he said he had been having all the same thoughts, and he had definitely been thinking about that large box of condoms. (laughs) But it wasn't enough. It's six weeks later another Thursday, and I'm starting what has become my morning routine. I wake up early, I go to yoga, I come home, I put a record on, and I'm chopping vegetables to make Sandy's salad and juice for the day. And I find myself thinking about those early conversations that we had. I'm thinking about art and music, and just trying to find that beauty in this world that can feel so harsh sometimes. And I'm thinking about how intensely two people love one another when they have constant reminders that it could all end at any moment. So I'm thinking about all of this, and I'm listening to music, and I'm chopping vegetables, and I notice that I just missed a phone call. It's Sandy's mom. I call right back, and she says, Sandy just passed away. And like before, I freeze, and I say what do I do, what do you need, where should I be, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And she told me to drive over. I said I'd leave right away, but I couldn't, and I just collapsed on the red couch in my living room and I just cried. And I thought about how it wasn't that long ago that I had been sitting on that same couch, holding Sandy's head in my lap, while we both just talked about how lucky we felt to have one another. But eventually, I got my shit together and I get in the car and I silently hope that it won't be the day that my beat up old car dies and leaves me stranded on the side of the road. And I turn on the radio and they announce that Prince has just died that same day. And they're playing the Sinead O'Connor version of Nothing Compares to You and I'm just fucking crying. When I started thinking of telling this story tonight, I would just stop every time I got to this point Because the truth is, I really don't have a good ending. There's this inclination to want to assign meaning to everything. And that's definitely what happened that night that Sandy woke up from that suicide attempt. Like, it had to mean something. It had to mean that he was going to live. It had to mean that he was going to beat cancer. And it had to mean that we were going to get that life that we were planning together. But that's not what it meant. And I don't know what it means and I don't know if we have any control over anything at all and the meaning of life and the meaning of death, I have no fucking idea. And I think that all I can do right now is just accept that and maybe try to find those glimpses of beauty that exist in this world. Thank you.
0: all for this week's episode folks this is prince behind me now and we just heard from melissa collins who you can find on instagram at melissa underscore a underscore collins now when i finish recording this episode i am going to record another check-in for patreon these are very interesting sort of behind the scenes what's going on in our lives sort of just like journal entries that i sometimes put up on patreon or i'll interview other people in the staff and i'm going to choose another bonus story to put up on patreon we like to give folks, lots and lots of bonus stories there that we haven't run on the free podcast. Don't forget you can always find new information about where the next Risk live shows are happening at risk-show.com/tour. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.
3: My back has been bothering me lately. I wonder if butt drugs would help?